Hi, my name is Michael Nettleman, and you're listening to the final installment of Episode 2 of Acoustic Nerve, a podcast about media and medicine. All this time, we've been talking about crafting an effective health advertisement, and we left off at an interesting question. On one hand, when public health ads try to scare people, they usually don't work. And you're over 28 times more likely to get anal cancer. It's never just HIV. Stay HIV free. Always use a condom. But if fear never works, then how would we explain something like Ebola? Do not listen to the hysterical voices on the radio and the television or read the fear-provoking words online. The people who say and write hysterical things are being very irresponsible. Here are the facts. Let's put it this way. How would we explain why people set into such a panic over Ebola, and yet they barely lift an eyebrow when it comes to the things that are much more likely to kill them, like smoking? It's a couple of things. It's the immediacy of Ebola. Once again, that's Kate Long, and she's got a point. I mean, Ebola is exciting, and... You can catch it from other people, and there's no cure. Uh, It's in the movies. The chimps are infected. They're they're highly contagious. They've been given an inhibitor. Infected with what? There's a fear factor there that's a little more tangible for people, a little more direct. They can imagine, for example, touching a loved one at a burial um, out of sorrow, and then imagine how scary it would be if that's how you got Ebola. But despite all the ways in which Ebola is different, you know, I was reading a recent article in the New England Journal of Medicine, and there was one part in particular that stood out to me. The authors reported that only 31% of the public said that they trusted public health officials in the United States to share complete and accurate information about the Ebola virus. Uh, They feel that the administration has misled a lot of people on a lot of things. Why should we believe you when you're telling us this stuff? Well, our, our approach at CDC is always to tell people more rather than less. We're going to tell you what happens, when it happens. When we don't know something, we'll tell you that as well. We level with people. Because but it wasn't the just the media that was responsible for this lack of trust. People already had very little trust in scientists and government. I mean, think about it. Especially at a time when so much is on the line, when nearly 7 in 10 people don't trust public health authorities, that's not a good sign for the way we've been going about communicating with people. And it's not just people's distrust of health officials that made them panic. I mean, look at where the panic was coming from. People around them, their neighbors, uh, familiar news anchors. These were people that they had come to trust over the years. People just like them. People are most likely to change when they're given a new identity. And that identification is most credible when it comes from someone who is just like me. In some ways, the same thing that made the Truth Campaign successful, in which teenagers saw each other fighting back against Big Tobacco, that same instinct of trust and being part of a group may have also led to people's fear of Ebola. It all comes down to trust. 
today I'm traveling just outside of New Delhi to a place called Gurgaon. Uh, I'm going there to meet a woman named Urvashi Guha. Uh, Urvashi is Senior Vice President at DDB Mudra, which is one of the largest advertising and marketing agencies in India. Their clients have included companies like uh, McDonald's and Reebok. But in addition to Urvashi's commercial work, she's also overseen public health campaigns on issues like contraception and polio eradication. So I'm walking into the building and there's this giant message printed along the wall. And it says, creating a brand is creating a culture. So the reason why we try to bring in the branding aspect to a campaign is also to build that trust. It is unusual to believe in the message in itself because the message is telling you something which you are not used to. You know, it is asking you for a changed behavior. So branding and culture are kind of like the spoonful of sugar for these messages. They're ways to win people's trust and show them that a product or a behavior is in line with their cultural values. But let's take this a step further. What happens when your message does precisely the opposite and opposes cultural norms? We were doing a campaign which is linked with age of marriage, you know, and how girls would get married in India very early. This was back in 2013, and DDB Mudra produced a campaign called Age of Marriage for the Indian Ministry of Health. At the time, nearly half of Indian girls were being wed at a very young age. When we were here at our table, all of us were rooting for, uh, except me, but the rest of the agency was rooting for doing a campaign where we would encourage the girl to stand up and say, oh no, I, I will ensure that I don't get married before 18. But something bothered Urvashi about this. And a week before the final pitch, she realized what it was there is a huge amount of societal pressure on the father to actually get his daughter married off. And he has, from his childhood, seen that that's the only way to go about it. So the woman he is married to got married early with him. There is no way that he can break that norm and say, oh no, today I'm doing something totally different. It doesn't work that way. And now in that kind of a condition, if his daughter is just going to get up one fine day and say, oh no, I'm not getting married, there's a revolt and there's a clash. And Somehow deep within me, something was telling me that, listen, you can't do that. You can't create a clash. Okay, so if you can't create a clash, then what do you create? What you have to create is a situation where the man suddenly realizes that as a father, I have other things to do rather than just getting my daughter married. I can get her educated. So with very little time to go, she changed the course of the entire campaign. I think about a week before the final pitch happened with the campaign, we kind of, you know, turned it around and uh, my creative team really hated me for it. I, I heard a lot for it. <laughs> but the fact is this, that we turned around the entire campaign to a perspective of the father and said that the father is very well-meaning. And the reason why he's conforming is because he doesn't want, a, you know, people in the community to object. So, in the TV spot, a group of men uh, brag to each other about how many attackers they've single-handedly fought off in the past. And one man claims uh, that it was him versus 50 people. The punchline is that these 50 people were actually his relatives, 
and they were all trying to get him to marry off his 12-year-old daughter, but he stood up to them. The commercial ends with this man, and he's got one arm around his daughter and his friends uh, essentially complimenting him for it. The Age of Marriage campaign won the Ladley Media Award for Gender Sensitivity, and it was really smart about reconciling the underlying conflict, not between fathers and daughters, but between a father's commitment to his community, to his family, and to his own masculinity. But if I suddenly say that the community is applauding you for not getting your daughter married, then suddenly he's happy, he's a happy man, he doesn't mind. Alright, so how do we even know that a message is effective in the first place? With the Truth Campaign, a bunch of people tried to do this back in 2005 in a very scientific way. What they did was they broke down the country into all of these smaller territories, and then they figured out in each of those places how often the truth ads were playing. And then through school surveys, they figured out that the more kids saw these ads, the less likely they were to smoke. But none of this actually tells you how to replicate something like the truth campaign. I mean, for that, you're going to need really good qualitative research. There's always historically been a preference for quantitative research and for randomized control trials, all of which are hugely important. But it has sometimes come at the cost of good qualitative work that should always sit in tandem with and alongside the quantitative stuff so that we really are understanding some of the pressures people are facing and the competing priorities people are having to choose between. And meanwhile, advertising companies have thoroughly embraced qualitative research. Here, Urvishi explains just a couple ways that they do that. The first thing is that once we get a brief, we actually like to visit a few locations and stay there. We'd spend a couple of days in that location trying to ask people questions, observe their behavior, until you're totally immersed in the understanding that comes from the ground level. It doesn't help us to get those insights that really touch the lives of people. And more and more, we're seeing public health researchers doing the same conducting focus groups and uh, building community partnerships. We'll do a cluster group. How we did it is that we exposed the group to about a 10 different um, commercials, which were from different categories. And then we checked on likability, relevance, and uh, memorability. So those are tests that typically that one would do at an agency. Likeability, relevance, and memorability. The types of data that create effective ads are not always the types of data that public health invests in. And these are the things that we can really be learning from the advertising world. Know your consumers intimately. Capture their trust. Creating trust is not going to be a uniform recipe. As much as we are a population discipline, you have to know the individuals. Like you have to, we have to understand the people in the communities we serve a little better than we do. So that's what Kate said when I asked her what her one biggest takeaway was from this whole experience. Well, okay, so there's three, but I know I have to say one. But the second thing would be we have to make um, smarter partnerships 
with people who excel at this stuff and who may have like no health background, but they get people and they get messaging and they understand how to use 10 seconds and 15 seconds really well. Um, And those are our friends in media. And I think this new crop of young people, so to speak, coming up are really, really great at that. And I think the WHO and global health communities in general could really capitalize on that energy in in great ways. Um, Of course, there needs to be a budget for those things. And I think the third thing is we just have to we have to put our game face on a little bit more. We have to get down in the dirt and figure out how to like win people's hearts and minds. So I wanted to thank everyone who's been reading and uh, listening and sharing this piece. Uh, it's been really, really fun. And even for those of us, maybe not in public health, but perhaps seeing patients day in and day out, Um, I think there's a lot for us to think about. I mean, like, what sort of messages uh, are we giving our patients? You know, especially those who smoke or have diabetes. How can we avoid scaring them with things like cancer and really get them motivated about making changes in their lives? How can we apply all of this to the doctor-patient relationship? I'm looking forward to more episodes this fall as I transition from the World Health Organization in Delhi to uh, the Stanford Journalism Program. And in the meantime, uh, maybe Urvashi can sign us off and give us some insight about Indian culture and uh, how that informs her creative process. If I go into the cultural nuances of our country, we are people who love stories. In every Indian heart will be millions of stories that reside from their childhood to now. So uh, storytelling in itself is a very powerful methodology to be talking to people and getting them to change their ways. A big thank you to Urvashi Guha and Kate Long for joining me in this episode. See the rest of you next time. With music by Chad Crouch.